This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, humane listeners. Artificial intelligence isn't the future. It's the here and now. And Manning Publications wants to help you get up to speed with some of the most coveted skills in the industry. From machine learning to computer vision, Manning is working with the most talented experts to help you get an edge in the world of AI. Whether you're a beginner or a seasoned programmer, Manning has content for everyone. And now, if you go to deals.manning.com humane and use the code PODHUMANE19, you can get 40% off of any of our hand-picked books and video courses for humane listeners. There's no better time than now to get started. So again, that's deals.manning.com slash H-U-M-A-I-N. We welcome back Brett Greenstein to Humane to learn what has changed in evolutionary AI, ethical AI, and responsible AI as a continued series to our April 2019 discussion on the rapidly emerging AI race. Listen in as we explore topics including why ethical AI is on the minds of everyone, when is it unethical not to use AI, and how responsible AI could be critical for every enterprise company. This is Humane. Welcome to Humane. My name is David Jakobovich, and I will be your host throughout this series. Together, we will explore AI through fireside conversations with industry experts. From business executives and AI researchers to leaders who advance AI for all, Humane is the channel to release new AI products, to learn about industry trends, and to bridge the gap between humans and machines in the fourth industrial revolution. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review.
Well, welcome back to another episode of the Humane Podcast, and I am joined back with Brett. Brett, we were on the Humane Podcast just about six months ago, got to chat about a lot of interesting evolution in AI and conversational AI and and, uh, ethical AI, and since then, there's been so much hot development, especially around ethics, so I'm pleased to have you on today to talk about that topic. What's going on in the space? Well, thank you. I think people have begun to realize that there are very hard questions to answer when it comes to where AI should be used. Obviously, as people think about capabilities that can do some of the work that people do, there's the ethical implications of putting people out of work that scares people. And there's also the fear that perhaps when AI is biased, it can cause damage, cause people to not be hired, can cause things that reflect badly on your brand to be used in business. So there's many of these these cases where people have begun to extrapolate their their inner fears and and transferred into AI and assume that by using something as powerful as AI, it must be ethically dangerous. But I think over the last few months, I'm beginning to see the conversation shifting from, is it scary to use AI to what if I don't use AI? Is that more unethical? Because AI might be able to solve a problem better than not using it. And this has come up increasingly because the accuracy of AI-based systems is consistently better than people in very narrow tasks. And so it's really hard to ignore when you work on these AI-based systems and you see a conversational system that is now more accurate than people answering a phone. At some point, it would actually be foolish to have people answer a phone if a system could answer better. Everyone wants to be an AI-first company. They do. And it sounds great. It sounds efficient and powerful and smart. And I I really get why people are nervous about it as well, because there's been a lot of scary stories, you know, in the news. But when you get past the stories, the real issue is that I think people have extrapolated to imagine, what if AI were me? What if AI replaced all of me? And that terrifies people. But in reality, it's good at some things. It's really good at some things, but it's also not good at everything. Yeah, I don't think it is good at everything yet, but there's this new show on Netflix I was watching in the past couple of weeks. I think it's called Better Than You or Better Than Human. Mm-hmm. It was recorded in Moscow, and they're showing a future where there's AR and VR everywhere, and these robots that are performing all the tasks that we talk about, like Sophia and Ex Mahina and all the bots. Yeah. But that's still kind of a doomsday scenario that we're nowhere near that. We aren't. And You know, in a perfect world, if AI could do everything we could do, we could sit on the beach and drink pina coladas and let the machines take, you know, do the work. But in practice, it's usually a very specialized skill set that is fairly narrow. And ultimately, we're still responsible for business and commerce and government and family. We can't delegate that to a system, but we can let certain things be done by systems. We've been doing it for 100 years. This is no different than that. The key is understanding what it's good at, what it's not, and making sure we're leveraging it for what it's good at. You know, I would love a bartender that makes me my Tanqueray tonic or one that makes me my Starbucks espresso. Mm -hmm. I think it's we're doing a disservice by not having the robots do that. And that's, I think, some of the premise, the thesis that um, you and I were chatting about before the recording about when is it unethical to not use AI? Yeah. So in this, you know, you can look at a lot of different cases, but There are certain things that AI already does better. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't have a radiologist, but image recognition is now so good 
that there are certain types of things in x-rays that can be read better by an AI than by a person. Now, you'd want to complement that because you want the judgment of a doctor, because a human being is accountable to other human beings in a way that AI is not. But it would be irresponsible to do a certain types of diagnosis and not ask the AI, did you spot anything? Because I didn't. And so we're getting to this tipping point where it's almost irresponsible to not ask, did the AI see something we couldn't see? In addition to what we saw, is it disagree with what we saw? And it's still a doctor's judgment in the end, what, what the diagnosis is and what you should do. But how could you not check when it's available to you as a tool? I definitely think that's the direction we're moving. It's, if you will, human in the loop. And we've seen a few ventures in the Bay Area moving into this direction where it used to be where humans would completely label data from scratch. But now we're at a tipping point where these AI systems will label the data and humans will check the data for that accuracy and to confirm the results. Sounds quite similar to the radiology example that you just presented. It is. You're starting to look for managing the exceptions instead of managing the bulk of the work and recognizing where the strengths are. Take a look at self-driving cars. A self-driving car generally can hold a lane better than any person. It is just dead right in the middle of that lane as long as you need to be. And so on lane keeping, I'd say it's better. But in exception situations, like when you're near construction or near schools or other places, why would you delegate that responsibility? Because the risk is high. So highway driving safe environments, keeping a lane is probably better than AI. And also you could use image systems in self-driving cars that can look in infrared and other frequencies we can't see. Wouldn't you want to at least have a warning there might be a person coming ahead of time? Even today, self-driving cars can already project when you might hit something. Better than we can. It will calculate based on your rate of speed, the speed in front of you of what something else is and whether you're accelerating or decelerating towards it and whether you're likely to have a collision. We can do that in our mind Wouldn't it be great to have an assistant that is also doing it to make sure we don't miss something? 100%. And, you know, in the last few episodes of Humane, I've been chatting with some of our presenters about self-driving and automation and where we're moving from level zero to level five systems, where zero means no automation. One means driver assistance. Two means partial automation. Three means conditional automation. Four means high automation. And five means full automation. And my question to you is two parts. First, where do you think we are in that stage with self-driving cars? And two, how applicable is this framework of five levels of automation, perhaps to other industries like radiology, data labeling, and what you're seeing emerging? So let's start on level one, level zero to five. Where do you, where do you think we are there? So obviously, best in class for cars gets you into level three. I mean, you are able to go for periods of time with only light attention being paid to a vehicle, and it will go for miles and miles and miles without, you know, without an incident. But would you go to sleep, as some people have, but would you go to sleep and let your car take you 30 miles to work? Um, that would be insane right now. Even the best in class, it's just not a safe thing to do. Obviously, it's not legal either. But, but from a safety point of view, there's still lots of things that come up. In many respects, the world is not really designed for self-driving cars as much as self-driving cars are not designed to fully take advantage of the world. We built all of our traffic systems and everything under the assumption that people drive cars, people cross streets, you know, bike lanes are bike lanes. We sort of know how things are because we designed it for people. So in a system that's more optimized for AI, and when AI gets better, you'll also have the roads more optimized for it as well, where lines will always be clear, where even traffic signals might have additional information in them 
to help cars better determine when the light's going to change on the other side, for example. Today, you just see red, yellow, green. But your car could look at that light, get information that says in 12 seconds, the other light's going to turn red. You know, it's amazing to think about smart cities, the future of how cities are designed with self-driving cars. And I recently saw a research report that defined what were the top cities in the world with smart cameras and cameras for tracking all the data. And New York City didn't even come in the top 30. In fact, New York City was about one one hundredth of the amount of cameras as cities like Beijing and Shanghai and China. Yeah. And you and I have talked about um, some of the differences in culture that allow for increased you know, camera usage in other places. And now in the U.S., there's a backlash in several cities around facial recognition and other things. But I think as cameras, as regulations help protect us from privacy, cameras can still help drive enormous efficiency and safety in cities as well. And I guess it really comes down to what's acceptable use of images, not should they be used at all. What's acceptable in 2019 is, you know, very new because it's foreign, it's strange, it's changed to a lot of people. So I think it's natural that a lot of people fear using AI and aren't sure what is or will not be ethical. But I think that's going to change very quickly in the next couple of years. I think it will. Now, you, you brought up New York City. I saw a video just this past week from 1911. It's a film that was AI was used to automatically colorize the film. But effectively, it was the city streets of New York City in 1911. It was amazing to watch because you've got cars and horses and people interacting. And you can see how much the city infrastructure has changed to optimize for cars now, where before they all had to coexist in the same physical space. Now we've got, you know, obviously better traffic signals and warning lights and lanes and everything to make it better. It's still chaotic. But now we can travel much faster and get more people through the same city that, you know, back then you could barely, you know, go two miles an hour and not have problems. Sure, especially with the horses, but um, yeah, kidding aside, on beyond city design and what that looks like, I thought what was fascinating that you mentioned is colorizing the video. And the question is, when do you use an AI versus when do you use a human? You know, for many years, there's been all the major uh, animation studios like Pixar and Disney that will have full-time colorists. In fact, today, when you see new videos popping up on Kickstarter all the time, they're hiring a colorist to make sure everything's at the right shade. And And, you know, for me, actually, an interesting case came up a few weeks ago in that I was meeting, um, I was seeing my grandparents for, you know, every few months we meet together in New Jersey and they share with me one of their photos from 1935. And this was, you know, a wedding at one of these, you know, clubs and progress clubs back in, you know, right after the Great Depression in New Jersey. And the photo was just completely destroyed, right? It had tears and rips and parts of faces missing. And, you know, I thought that moment I said, you know, is there an AI today that can really do that and do a good job? And I started thinking of deep fakes and all the issues with hair and and eyes and noses being misplaced. And I said, probably not. So I found one of the best photo restoration artists in New York City who manually and painstakingly went through the photo, completely restored it. And it's so beautiful. And, you know, the story you just shared reminded me of where we have humans doing certain tasks and, you know, where, again, when this become unethical not to use the AI, does a coloring of video and photo really require a human once you're trained on so many tasks? I don't know. You picked a level five case, which is, you know, tears and, and aging and all the stuff that requires tremendous sort of a human touch to know how a picture would look natural when fully correct and restored with lots of missing information. 
But for the bulk of things, if you were taking, you know, a whole bunch of, of black and white photos that were decent quality photos, colorizing them with a computer would be a really good first step to get it close enough. And then you might do the refinement with a person. And I think that's where you look at where systems can augment what we do and help us to get our jobs done more productively. One of the other cases that we think about for where it's unethical to not use AI is where the cognitive load on people, where just the amount of information and work is so high that actually it induces strain, it induces errors, it induces stress on people. So if you had to do 5,000 photos, you'd be pretty stressed about it, trying to get it done in a week. But if you had an AI do all the photos and then you touched up and tweaked and fixed the ones that needed it, you'd get more done with less stress. And all of our jobs are filled with those kinds of tasks. That's so interesting, right? You know, case that's going to happen to most people in their lives is getting married and having a wedding. And you think about it today is you hire a photographer and the photographer manually goes through every single photo, spending days or weeks doing all that retouching. And Mm -hmm. you pay a premium for that. You know, sometimes you could pay hundreds or thousands of dollars on that. But I mean, I think we're going to move to that place and we're already moving there. So if we look at photo retouching with software like Photoshop and Lightroom, there's so many extensions and packages that claim to be AI ready, AI enabled, which they're really using these presets that are, you know, performing a repetitive task over and over that, as you just mentioned, Brett, you know, you no longer need the human to do that, but then they could double check oh no, the shading on this cloud with the sky is a little off or no, that dress is not fully, you know, white balance corrected. So let me just double check that. Yeah, the the selfie feature on my phone actually automatically has a filter that smooths your face when you're taking a selfie. It does it live while you click, it's already done. And so rather than going through like an Instagram filter or something else, and I look at that and I think, one, it made me look younger, so I'm happy. But isn't it amazing that you can image process like that while you're snapping photos it's correcting them on the fly, smoothing out, you know, adjusting color, adjusting focus. It's, it's really very impressive. It's so incredible. And like with Facebook and Instagram, like that's pretty cool when you're FaceTiming with a friend or you're, you know, doing something social. But there's also the bad actors, if you will, of using these corrections. And you may have heard there was a case that dropped in the past couple months in China of one of these celebrity vloggers who used one of these live video corrections to make her look like a 23-year-old model. I did see And that. she had like 100,000 fans and she was making like $15,000 a month, mind you, in China. And Apparently, during one of her vlogs, the video correction failed and they saw her real identity. And she was like this middle aged, fat, you know, like normal person. And like overnight, like all her fans left. And so it brings it begs up the question, like, when is a good use case and when is someone trying to hack the system and there should be maybe regulation put in place there? Well, but in part, we are we're all sort of adjusting to a world that has live effectively live correction. And so we didn't have that before. So we expected people to be real. Then we watched television and we noticed how much makeup and other work they do to make themselves look good. And then HD television came out, 1080p and 4K. We began to see a lot more imperfections on people, but then it just raised the bar for better editing, better video features, better plastic surgery, all of it to be basically 4K ready when you're on TV. I think in a world where you can do Um, live overlays and corrections for people in video, we're going to start to expect it and get used to it, knowing that people don't look the same. There's a whole website devoted to what famous people look like without their makeup. 
and they look just like all the rest of us. But in makeup, they look great. We don't complain that they look good on film because we know they're made up and we expect good lighting and all that stuff. We pay for it to see in a great movie. But I think that enhancement is becoming just more normal and we're getting used to it and we'll, we'll adjust it. Now, you also mentioned social media. I think one of the other things that strikes me about ethical use of AI is that social media is filled with horrible things. In addition to great things, a lot of horrible things. And companies spend a lot of energy filtering out the horrible, making sure that all of us aren't have to be exposed to things that are untrue, that are hateful, that are violent, that are you know against the law in some way. And up until now, that's required a lot of people looking at a lot of really bad images and a lot of bad videos and bad text and scrubbing it out. And obviously not all of it gets scrubbed out because we see some of it, but it's a really difficult task for human beings to look at and be exposed to. It's enormous stress and stuff. And so using where you can use AI to pre-filter out the really awful stuff so people don't have to look at it in the content moderation side, that's just an ethical thing to do because it's really unfair to make people look at that stuff. It's necessary, but it's awful. Yeah, content moderation is so interesting. I mean, I think for myself as a consumer, you know, uh, where I see it the most is also places like reviews on sites like Amazon and Yelp and TripAdvisor. And I actually uh, this summer had a personal case with content moderation that negatively impacted me from a consumer brand that I wasn't expecting. So um, the story is, you know, I have a dog, as many of us do have pets and love my dog, just like a baby, just like a kid. And my dog got sick because I had recently bought a new dog food and, you know, the dog wasn't reacting well to it. And, you know, I tested several times just to make sure was it or was it not the food and it was the food. And so I started investigating and reading into it that apparently Amazon does not temperature control their warehouses on like Chewy and these other um, competitors. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I read into it and I said, oh, this is terrible. So I requested a refund, got the refund, you know, all that worked out fine. But then I wanted to protect other consumers from having a sick dog from this dog food that's not great. So I wrote a review for the Amazon platform for this dog food. You know, this dog food got my dog sick. I requested a refund. Amazon provided the refund. You know, I recommended that they provide more temperature control because I don't want other dog owners to get sick. And then when I tried to post the review, Amazon said, we're checking with our review curation team and we'll let you know when your review gets posted. Hmm. Then I get an email two days later that says, we could not process your review because it violated one of our policies of providing factually misleading information. And I thought that was so fascinating. That was, you know, here in August 2019 in the sense of, was that done by an AI? Was that done by a human? Or was there something there that, you know, wasn't best serving an interest or negatively impacting people. And so I think it's really interesting. Well, you're touching on a lot of things all in that same example. So first, obviously, lots of positive reviews get through that are not factually based and not even necessarily generated by people, which is why, you know, a lot of the ratings are very high in general, you know, review sites. So that's a challenge in making sure that the positives are not overly positive. When you put in a negative and then have a high bar to meet to prove that it's factual, that's a challenge. But you should have a right to know whether a person determined that or an AI and how it was determined so you could respond. Yeah. And so I think that's a level of, we talked earlier about responsible use of data, like from cameras. The other side of it is when AI is used, you should know that it was used. 
and have some ability to have, you know, discussion or escalation if you disagree with it with an outcome, because it will enhance the AI for everybody else once you solve it. And you should know that it was generated by an algorithm or a person. Absolutely. Because, you know, in this situation, there was no recourse. There was no email to respond to, no chat, no nothing. But one platform where I love it for content moderation is Facebook, because whenever I, you know, see something that I may not find appropriate, they give me the options, right? They give me the options to go and say, oh, maybe this is not great or, oh, maybe this should be approved. So I feel empowered, you know, and I didn't feel empowered in this experience. So I kind of hope that maybe Amazon adopts a, a Facebook type platform for reviewing content. Yeah. Yeah. I look at all of these cases of customer service, human interaction, you know, where algorithms are used, where they're not, making sure that people know that algorithms are being used. So human beings are very biased, right? The person who, or the thing who reviewed your review, it could be just the personal bias of a human being, or it could be a bias of a system, or the system could be correct, but you just need to know what you should change to fix it. So I think as, as these customer service, human interaction systems become better, they will also let you know why something happened, a little more transparency, and what you can do about it. Because if it was an algorithm, if it were an algorithm, it would have told you it was because of this and this and this, which are then correctable. If it's a person, they may or may not be able to tell you that. They may just use a judgment call. So in some ways, an AI-based system, which is building things on confidence levels and percentages and, and probabilities, a system like that can also tell you why it made a decision. Not every time, but it can certainly give you the things that matter the most to its decision, where a human being cannot always do that. So there are times where you want to use it, if nothing else, just to give you a chance to know why it happened. And what's so interesting is in this use case, I didn't know if it was an AI or a human and didn't even have the option to then appeal or submit, you know, a review clarification or an adjustment. You know, typically when I buy products, there's consumer reports and certain, you know, consumer protection boroughs that help empower you. But I think that's important here too. And, and I think as we're moving into a society that is driven by AI with humans in the loop, you know, this question again about when is it unethical not to use AI comes in a lot to cost of labor, you know, for certain tasks, but then also the accuracy of humans, you know, can they perform better than an AI without the AI or even better with the AI? Yeah. So take a look at hiring. Like For a while, there was a lot of people who talked about hiring might be introducing bias if used AI for filtering resumes and other things. And there is a risk of that. But human beings are inherently biased, all of us. And so a human being looking through a stack of resumes will be just as biased or worse because you can't actually calculate it. You can't measure it. But we can measure the bias of an AI-based system against normal distributions or desired distributions. So let's say you have a hiring AI that's going through all the resumes coming in, and it produces a result that where 60% of the, the ones that get accepted are male. Well, you got to look at a lot of factors and you can calculate whether that was actually a biased result or not based on how many came in, what resume distribution came in, what skill sets exist in your field, all kinds of different quantitative things. But a person looking at a resume and just kind of tossing one aside or grabbing one, you have no idea what biases influence that person. So I think the complement of people owning the HR process and whatever policies govern it and AIs that actually can tell you a little bit more about why they made the decisions they made is a better combination than purely doing with people or purely doing with AI. 
I like that, you know, have your hiring manager or recruiter. And basically when the resumes come to them, the AI says, know this, this on the resume, or Mm -hmm. this is the score that we gave for these reasons. And then the recruiter can look it over. You know, I've also had the opportunity to do a lot of hiring and interviewing of candidates over the years. And when I was just getting started in that, I remember I was shadowing a hiring manager at this Fortune 500 company. And they got for one of these positions, it was an engineering role, they got 300 resumes. And I was so fascinated how the hiring manager was going to go through them. And they had a couple folders, they had the resumes, and they opened each one, looked at it for, I kid you not, eight seconds, and instantly in that time, apparently knew it was good enough or not to advance to the next round. And I I was mind blown. And I said, there has to be a better way. It sounds like now with these new AI recruiting tools that are beginning to emerge, perhaps we're going to move into uh, a process that better serves humans, but also frees up the hiring manager to work on more challenging tasks, such as executive placement or better, you know, ensuring that they can build an organization where culture is uniform and all people and bots are having a good experience. Or or just setting policies to know what sort of criteria to look for in candidates. I don't know about you, but when I was first coming into the workforce, I was told to make sure your resume is a slightly different color or a little bit larger. So when people shuffle the papers, yours stands out. Now, students are actually sort of reverse engineering their, their resumes so they have the right buzzwords in there so that an algorithm will pick them. So they have to think about what's looked for and then work backwards to make sure they're covering all the words, terms, or, or formatting that would help get them to the top you know, of an algorithmic decision. That's a whole different world. And it's a really interesting you know, result. Yeah. And I think still, believe it or not, even with all the algorithm tuning that college students and those in the workforce are applying today, I think the best way to get into a company that you want to work for is have an informational conversation with someone in that company. And after that great conversation, you ask them for a referral. And if they say yes, that's probably going to beat the AI. It's probably going to put you at the top of the the pile. What would you say? It is because relationships matter. And that I think that's the other part about people worrying about AI incorrectly. Like they think once we give AI a task that we've now delegated it and it now runs on its own. But in reality, people are still ultimately responsible for every system in a business. You have a company, Cognizant Company, I mean, 280,000 people. We are responsible for the behavior of everybody. At the same time, if we also have a bunch of AIs doing work for our company, we're still responsible for how they behave too. And so I heard somebody recently say that they're a CIO, but they're also effectively the HR leader for all the automation systems in their company. Mm. They're like a technology HR leader because they're responsible for the behavior and the outputs and the performance of of all the AI-based systems in their company. You can't really just delegate this. You still are responsible for the policies and quality and bias and all the other things that go into making a system work well. And that's the challenge, right? 280,000 people, you could place all these, you know, augmented tasks and bots in place Mm -hmm. to help you run decisions, but you're responsible for the AI, which means you need these reports and these check-ins and these committees to make sure everything that you are doing is ethical. You know, we've seen in place different products go live and then there's this, you know, backlash because the committees weren't set up or the responsible processes weren't set up. And I think one of the big phrases, going back to what you mentioned earlier on facial recognition and everything we're starting to see, that there's 
a need for regulation. It seems that that is the direction we're moving, at least in the U.S. And what's the best partnerships we can set up so we're moving on a good path that's going to advance AI, not not limit it, but also help with that understanding and explainability? Well, there's a couple of best practices. So we run an ethical AI council in the company in Cognizant, which is a subset of our corporate responsibility office. And it specifically focuses on making sure that the projects we do, that we've considered the ethical implications of doing it, as well as the ethical implications of not doing it. So once we're aware a technology has a capability, we have to look and say, should we be using it here? Should we not be using it over there? We actually have a cross-functional team to do that. And many companies I'm working with are establishing similar structures. So I think at a company level, that's good. But at a government and policy level, I think we have to set a, a sort of bill of rights for the use of AI that helps establish what is a reasonable use of data? What is need to deliver without bias? What are the ethical ground rules? And when is it unethical to not use it? If you're, um, I don't know how this policy works, but if you have the ability to save someone's life and you choose not to, right, that's unethical. I don't know if it's illegal, depend, I'm not a lawyer, mm. but it's unethical to walk by someone you could save their life, but don't do something. When you're involved in AI, for example, business decisions, most business leaders, most human beings can only balance about three parameters when they're optimizing. Mm. Anything more than three, four, five, six parameters, you're pretty much guessing what the best decision to make is. But an AI can balance hundreds of decisions of optimization points and parameters. So if you're making important decisions for your company and for your shareholders and for your employees and your customers, and you don't consult an AI that could help you balance better, isn't that unethical? Is it irresponsible to not consider all the factors? You know, I think with all those factors, what we're thinking about, especially that scenario of, you know, you're in New York City and you're biking along the streets and you see a a bicyclist, you know, get hit by a car, Mm -hmm. right? Like, is it your obligation, your duty, your citizenship to help the bicyclist to call 911? Or where does that come as far as moral hazard is? And I think that's very subjective. And that goes back to the classic problem also of self-driving cars. You know, if you're driving and then an old lady crosses the street, do you hit the old lady and injure her? Or do you swerve and hit the mom with her kid, assuming you have to hit either scenario? And it's quite complicated. And I think with moral hazard, there's no clear decision yet. But the truth is, can you use the technology to help us make the better decision? Because as you rightfully said, Brett, you know, if you give me more than three to six inputs, suddenly I'm saying, okay, I think these two inputs are very important. You know, the speed the person's going on the bicycle or, you know, the direction the car is driving. But beyond that, like, it's just guesswork. So we might as well get as much data as possible so we can responsibly and ethically make better decisions. So you're on, you're on really what I think is the big point of this entire conversation, which is As a person driving in that situation, I hate to be morbid, but if if you're driving and something happens and you have to choose who you're going to hit, it's a horrible decision and one you can't possibly optimize on. You can't factor in life expectancy, insurance costs, liability, any of these things. You you just can't figure it out. Even risk of death, one might be riskier than you can't figure out any of that stuff. You have to pretty much go with your gut while you're driving and hopefully for, you know, everything works out. But we always extrapolate and say, well, an AI system has to make that choice. But we actually can. But if I were driving, I would certainly want to know as much information as an AI can calculate to tell me what is going to be 
the least impact by whatever factors matter to me. You know, numbers of lives, life expectancy, whatever factors would matter to me. Systems should know that. You should be able to set it and define it in some way and at least be informed in that moment when you can't make a decision fast enough. At least having an AI tell you, you know, what's going on would be better than having nothing tell you and just guessing. You know, the whole industry has evolved so quickly in the last 20 years. I mean, before data science and AI went through their revival as industries, everyone was focused on the actuarial sciences. And the actuarial sciences is always about loss experience. And can you monitor and see how changes in different decisions cause financial impact? But I think the big question that you're asking here, Brett, is, well, what's important to me? Is it financial? Is it life? Is it something else? And when we're put in those situations that are uncomfortable, where either choice is going to unfortunately cause a negative impact, it's how do you best mitigate against that? And it could be building a smarter AI system, or it could be empowering you with those insights to make better choices. And I think that is all about the heart that we've been connecting on today, which is what is ethical and what is unethical about when you should or should not use AI. And that's going to be, I think, the talking point at conferences, at industry, and at products, especially as we're moving into CES 2020, seeing what's emerging. I agree. And I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. And I'm glad we're able to have a conversation about it. And I think for all of us, we should recognize that as the advancements in AI grow, and they are growing very fast. It wasn't only a couple of years ago where we were happy if a camera could tell dog or cat. You know, now we're talking about diagnosing, you know, um, illness in x-rays and real-time monitoring of traffic and road and safety conditions. You know, this is, it's an amazing set of leaps. As the leaps come, the times when we should consider using AI instead of not using AI will grow. And it would be, in my assertion, unethical to not consider that more and more every year. So all of us have to be watching for the advancements in AI, how it could be used, and what would happen if we don't. Absolutely. And future speaking in the AI space, you know, one of my favorite shows I come back to, whether it's for its sensationalism or just its fun overall is Grey's Anatomy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on one of the recent season episodes, they have started to actually show using AI for diagnosing these, you know, tumors and, and even using AR and VR devices like Microsoft HoloLens as well to perform operations. I'm really excited to see where we're going to continue to move in the industry with ethics. And this has been a fun conversation as always. I can't wait for our next one. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it too. Brett, thanks for being on Humane as always. Uh, have a great day. Thank you, David. Hey, humans. Thanks for listening to this episode of Humane. My name is David Jakobovich. And if you like Humane, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Luminary. Thanks for tuning in and join us for our next episode. New releases are every Tuesday. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. 
And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.